0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jacob. I lead, uh, I lead the middle school and high school ministry at Covenant Church. And before I want to get in today's message, I did want to say thanks. Um, just for the privilege that I had this summer, because we, we did two summer camps, and we actually partnered with your guys' this church. So it was really fun to kind of get to know some of your teens, some of your leaders. Uh, it was fun to get to know some of your high schoolers in North Carolina. It was, I only had to make one rescue, which is great. Um, it was also fun, too, just getting to know some of your middle schoolers in the, the heat, heat of gator country earlier this month. So I just want to say it was, it was a fun privilege. I'm thankful for it. Uh, thank you for the privilege of being here this morning as well. This morning's passage is going to come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll be looking at the first six verses, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. This is the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have had through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who is made to be sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to start us with a little bit of an exercise. Now, before someone starts panicking and says, I don't exercise, we're going to do a mental exercise, so I won't ask you to do too many push-ups. So what we're going to do is a mental exercise, and what I want you to do, I want you to think about yourself 10 years ago. Or how about 20 years ago or 30 years ago? If you're a teenager, think about yourself five years ago. And if your old self were to meet your current self, what would that person say? Now, I believe my old self is here this morning. (laughs) So knowing myself, what my old self would say to me today is, I love what you did with your hair. Now, so for many of us, obviously, we look a lot different physically than we did 10 years ago. I mean, some of you guys were babies 10 years ago, so you look really different. But I think also mentally, also, many of us are also different. Um, some of us view the world very differently than we used to, based on the things that have happened to us or happened around us. Hopefully, we could say that we're mentally stronger than we were 10 years ago, that we've matured mentally 10, from 10 years ago. But I want to spend a little time talking, moving past the mental, moving past the physical, and I want to think uh, for us to think spiritually. And I want you to ask yourself this Have I grown spiritually? Another way to phrase it, am I more like Jesus today than it was five years ago? Has, does my life demonstrate and reflect the faithful God? who is king of the universe and ruler of my life, has been working inside of me. These, these are some kind of the sore heavy questions that came to my mind when I was reading this passage for the first time. Questions that if we're honest with ourselves, we don't necessarily like the answers to. So this passage is going to definitely challenge us this morning. It's going to make us ask those questions and think about those answers that we don't always want to think about. But at the same time, this passage is going to greatly, greatly encourage us. Because what, and we'll be encouraged because it teaches us a lot about the Holy Spirit. Who in this, in our passage, he was referred to in verse 3 as the Spirit of the living God. But this passage is also going to encourage us because we're going to learn about the growth that comes about in us because of the Spirit. Now, unfortunately, in Reformed Presbyterian circles that we're kind of run, we run in, the Holy Spirit doesn't always get talked about very often. Uh, some theologians, they've kind of said that the, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the forgotten member of the Trinity. Because it's my guess that I'm sure if, if a lot of us were asked, we could say quite a bit about God the Father. And if someone asked us, we could tell them a lot about Jesus but if were, someone were to ask us about the Holy Spirit, I think we would have a little bit of a harder time going into detail. Now, there's obviously exceptions, but I think for the most part, that's, we would all kind of be in that same boat. So one of our goals this morning is to change that, to move the Holy Spirit from the forgotten member to his rightful place in our lives. Our goal is to walk away with a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and to be able to articulate well some of the things that he does in the lives of his people. Now, I want to specify, I want to say some, because we don't have the time or even have the ability to go into a long exhaustive list of all the things that the Holy Spirit does. But what I want us to do this morning is to focus in, to hone in on one work of the Spirit. And this, this kind of serves as our main point this morning, that the Holy Spirit works and writes the story of, our, of Jesus on our lives day after day. So the way I want us to kind of go about understanding this main point of the Holy Spirit writing the story of Jesus on our hearts day after day is by giving us two different images or pictures and so, what these pictures are, we're going to say that we're going to see that the spirit works as a stonemason and a mailman. All right. So now, if you if you were following along with the text that we read a few moments ago, especially those first few verses, you would have picked up on this letter language that was that Paul used. In verses one and verse two, he used the phrase "letter of recommendation." In verse 3, he said that his audience is a letter of Christ. And then, if you, a little further along, there's a reference to ink in this passage, and then there's also a mention of tablets. Now, in our culture today, we are pretty spoiled, because when we think of tablets, we think of iPads. We think of those beautiful, magical screens that entertain us for hours with these games and movies, and they make our, make our little kids zombies. But what, obviously, Paul wasn't referencing iPads. What Paul was talking about was those stone tablets that you go chisel out of a rock face. Because if you wanted a tablet, what you had to do is you had to grab your tools, go to a wall, trace out and design the picture you wanted, and then chisel it out. All tons and tons of work. And after you'd finished getting your. T- your stone tablet out, this work still wasn't done because now you had to actually chisel out the message you want to write. So here's just a complete sidebar for my guys in the room. If you have a girlfriend or wife, ch- impress them this week with this chiseled out love tablet. It gets major brownie points. My wife will not be getting one, sorry. But, because, right, th- this wasn't easy work to make these tablets because mainly because the material that they were used wasn't malleable. That stone is not easily molded or adjusted. That's why we're always so impressed when we see pictures of pieces of art like the Statue of David in Italy. Now, I would put a picture up on the screen, but this is is a PG sermon, Um, so if you want to know what the Statue of David looks up, you have to go look it up later. But This 17-foot statue took Michelangelo approximately three years to make. And we're we're impressed because we know the work and precision that it took to make that statue. It would have only taken one wrong chisel cut to make that statue fall apart, and Michelangelo would have had had to start all over. This man was an incredible artist, as a person who's horrible at art, I am so impressed with what this guy could do. But while he had this incredible ability to break off and shave off pieces of stone in, more, in order to make art, this guy did not possess the ability to make this stone into something that it wasn't. Even though he's able to transform this, this chunk of marble into a realistic-looking person, he lacked the ability to make the, this rock into a real man. That he couldn't make a man who could breathe or think or walk. He couldn't make a woman who could, who could sing, could laugh, could dance. Michelangelo's masonry skills had limitations. But those limits don't apply to the Holy Spirit, who we see in this passage as the, the ultimate stonemason. Because what the Holy Spirit does is he takes hearts of stone and he turns them into flesh. Now, some of you this morning are like, you know, I just had my yearly really physical, and they said nothing about granite being stuck in my heart. You know, this sounds like abstract thinking. What we mean when we say that there's a stone heart, this heart condition is a spiritual one, that there's a spiritual hardness inside of us. Now, I do want to stress that a person with a stone heart is not necessarily an unpleasant person. You know, individuals with stone hearts, can they, they can be good neighbors. They can be good friends. They can be, be good teammates. They can be great bosses. Like, having a stone heart doesn't mean that everyone who has one is a sad, unpleasant person all the time. But ultimately, what, ha- what having a stone heart means is that a person is hardened and resistant to the things of God. And this resistance, this can can come in all different forms. It can come in apathy, disgust, distrust, anger, outright rejection. We could go on. But ultimately, the point is that a person with a hardened heart or a stone heart is one who is opposed to God. The, The clearest example in Scripture of what a stone heart looks like is from the Exodus account with Pharaoh. And I'm sure many of you guys know that story. In the book of Exodus, we read about how you know, Pharaoh, had, the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt by the Pharaoh, and God had sent Moses, you know, this disgraced prince, to go return to Egypt to ask the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But Pharaoh said no, and he and so God, as a result, he sent the ten plagues of Egypt, and each of these plagues were powerful, clear signs from God that fully demonstrate God's power. Through these signs, Yahweh showed his true power, clear power over all these cheap imitation gods of Egypt. Actually, if you wanted a really fun study, go through the the plagues and then look at Egyptian gods. The way they line up is just masterful. So even though Pharaoh had saw these signs, he hardened his heart towards God. He saw for firsthand the power of God demonstrated, and he still rejected God. He refused to obey. So, right, the Pharaoh, he's a clear example. Like, right? Yes, that is a hardened heart. But what Scripture teaches us as a whole is that hardened hearts are not rare occurrences. Instead, the, the Bible teaches that every one of us initially has a heart of stone, that we are born sinners, which means that we are born with hearts of stone that are opposed to God. And the Bible is clear, too, that all who are opposed to God will not inherit eternal life in heaven. That's a major problem that we have. If every one of us has a stone heart and we can't inherit eternal life, that's a problem. So what is the solution, right? What's, What's the antidote to a stone heart? How do we receive eternal life in heaven? And the answer is, pretty clear that this passage tells us. It says the answer is the Holy Spirit's work is how we receive eternal life. The Holy Spirit softens our hearts to the power of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, because the Spirit is ultimately the one who makes clear to us the gospel. The Spirit is the one who helps us make sense of how a a good God who created us who we freely and happily and joyfully rebelled against, would willingly send Jesus down as a baby. To be born into a family without status, without wealth, to live a fully human life in which he experienced hunger and thirst and pain. All in order to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be bruised, to be spit on, to be mocked and nailed to a cross to die. Like, why would God subject himself to that? Why would a God who's enthroned in heaven choose a lowly manger in a cave and a wooden cross? To a person with a stone heart, that doesn't make any sense. God doesn't do that because he's God. But this is where the great stonemason gets to work. Because the Spirit reveals the reason that Jesus came. That Jesus didn't just come to be a good example for us to live by. But Jesus came because of our sin. Because of the vileness and hardness inside of us. That Jesus came to pay the debt that we owe to God. So that we could be called sons and daughters of him. What the Spirit does is he cracks open our hearts. And he reveals to us just how bad our sin problem is. How invasive it is. What he's doing is he's showing us our great need for salvation. And then he shows us the solution. He shows us the Savior. He shows us that the Savior is not far off. But he's near to the brokenhearted. That the risen Lord invites us to come to, him, come to him in faith. And no one who ever comes to him will ever be turned away. So friends, I want us to ask ourselves, has the Spirit been chiseling away at your heart? Has the Holy Spirit shown you just how deep your rebellion is? Has your sin been laid bare in front of you so you can't hide it any longer? If that's the case, I want you to turn to God and I want you to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit as God is making a masterpiece out of what had once been stone. Ponder that for a minute. I who was once a wretch, I who was once broken and completely undeserving, now I've been made into Now, I'm called a masterpiece. A masterpiece that's much greater than some statue sitting in an art gallery in Italy. And what makes it even more special is that the stonemason is still working on us, even right now. That God is improving on the masterpiece that he's already made. Now, we are not the finished product yet. We're there, but there's so much more to go. The spirit of the living God, that great stonemason, has made us into masterpieces. But again, he hasn't made us to be art gallery pieces. No, what he's done is he's made us into letters. So our, so our second image this morning is that the Holy Spirit works as a mailman. In the first two verses of our passage, Paul was on, and Paul and Timothy were on the defensive. As it often often happened in the course of Paul's ministry, he was forced to defend himself against false teachers who had got worked their way into the church. So he was regularly asked to justify his message, to, to prove his credentials. In the case of 2 Corinthians 3, he was at, it seems as if one group who in the chapter before Paul referred to as peddlers of God's word, they were asking for a letter of recommendation. In other words, they were asking Paul and Timothy to produce a letter of recommendation from other people saying that they were worth listening to. Now, if I had to summarize Paul's response in one word, I think it would be something like this, Seriously. Y'all are asking me for my references. How about one key reference, the Corinthian church itself? That's that's a mic job. The ones that he was writing this letter to were his witnesses. Because Paul loved these people. He said that his their names were written on his heart. He had taught them about Jesus. He had laughed with them. He had cried with them. He had challenged them. He had encouraged them. He had served with them and served alongside of them. For in, in my opinion, the only letters of recommendation that are really worth reading are the ones that prove that the person who is writing the letter has spent significant time with the person they're recommending. And Paul was saying that he had done so much with this, these people that no physical copy of a letter was necessary Because the results of his work could be clearly seen. That the lives of the Corinthians served as a living letter of recommendation. Because the members of the Corinthian church were not the same as they had once been before, they had been transformed from who they once were. But I want to specify that Paul's not speaking from a place of pride here. He's not like, look how great these people are because of me. Now, what he's saying was actually the opposite. He was pointing out how God had used him to work in that community. He wanted the people to remember to glorify and praise God for all the ways that the Spirit had moved in that part of the world. Paul was saying that these Corinthians were not a letter of Paul, but rather they were letters of Christ. That their lives reflected the work that God had done in them. Because what the Spirit had done was write a story on their hearts and on their lives. And that was the wonderful story of Jesus, which is a, a story of amazing love and glorious redemption, a story that results in a hope and a future. And that story wasn't meant to be hidden in the back of, their, back of their minds. But it was meant to be the shaping component of their lives. Because the story of Jesus, the good news, was the core of their lives. And it impacted everything that they did. It impacted the way that they parented. How they treated their spouses. How they handled money. How they viewed politics. It defined their sexual ethics. The story of Jesus is what gave them strength and confidence in their lives, even in the midst of great trials that happened so often in that early church. The Corinthians had confidence in life because the Holy Spirit had taught them something that all of us here need to know and be reminded of every single day, and that's that Jesus is enough. That the work of Jesus is sufficient for me. It's sufficient for us. And that there's nothing that I need to do or even can do to make the work of Jesus better or more complete. One thing that I love about this passage is that it teaches us something about the dance between sufficiency and dependency. All of us are completely dependent on God to be saved. Uh, I, lo- I love the Puritans, and the Puritans often use the language of, of, of we're in a pit, and that we're in such a pit that we're actually digging ourselves deeper, just trying to get out. But the only way we get out is when God reaches down into that pit, and he pulls us out. We're dependent because we're in that pit, and we can't get out. And we're, but God is sufficient in the fact that he can pull us out. Paul was reminding the Corinthians to not forget their sense of dependency that God had got them to the point that they were at. He had saved them from that pit. But there would not be a time when they wouldn't need him. There's never a sense where God frees us and then says, you're on your own. We always are dependent on God. And God had made these people, these Corinthians, into a letter, and that letter was made to be shared with other people. He wanted that letter to be delivered to others. One of my favorite biblical illustrations that kind of helps us understand this, this imagery better, it comes from Luke chapter 8. And in Luke chapter 8, we read about Jesus encountering that demon-possessed man who was called Legion. And this man was called Legion because he possessed so many demons. Just to give a little bit of perspective, a Roman legion consisted between 5,000 and 6,000 demons. I don't think we can say, well, he had for sure 5,500 demons, but we get the, we get the picture. These demons would torment this man, and they forced him into the desert, which we all know was a miserable, desolate place. And this man, he was feared by the people of his town. His appearance was ragged, and he was naked. His mind was completely gone. He lived amongst the tombs around the town. And he, he was so feared that when people were traveling, they would take the long way around just to avoid going past where this guy was. But all of that changed when Jesus came to town, because that legion of demons, however many that was, stood no chance against the word of God at jesus 's command. Every single demon was released from that man, and the people of the town they, they heard about something that was going on outside the town, so they, they they flocked out probably very tentatively, they went there and they saw and they were shocked by what they saw. Because the man who had been formally called a legion now was calm and collected. That he was properly dressed. His mind was completely restored. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. The text tells us that the townspeople were so filled with fear because of how dramatic the change was. That they were so afraid they asked Jesus to leave the region because of what he could do. But as Jesus was leaving, this formerly demon-possessed man at, like, begged Jesus to let him come with him. But I love just, uh, Jesus responded in a way that might seem strange to us. He said, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And that's exactly what the man did. He returned to his town and he th- went throughout the city proclaiming what God had done for him. The power that cast out that legion of demons is the same power that brings sinners from death to life today. It's the same power that makes stone hearts into flesh. And as living letters, we are called to read ourselves to all those who are around us. We are to say to others, see what God has done in it and is doing in my life. And then we follow that up with sharing how God can do the same in theirs. Many of us struggle with this. I know that I definitely do. We feel inadequate. We're afraid of how people are going to respond. We're afraid of saying the wrong thing. But again, this is where we go to that dance of dependence and sufficiency. Because in our weakness, in our fears and our doubts, insecurities, We are called to rely on God, to depend fully on him as the Spirit makes us sufficient to be ministers of the covenant of grace. Now, this doesn't mean that all of us are called to be pastors or to be missionaries in a foreign country, but rather what it means that all of us have been called to share the wonderful news of salvation that's found in Jesus to share the story that has been written on our hearts and on our lives. And we are called to trust the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us in this process. None of us are the great stonemason. We're not called to turn someone's heart to flesh from stone. But instead, we're called to be letters. Letters that tell that wonderful story of Jesus Letters that tell others about how God has made masterpieces out of wretches. And how God is still at work even right now. So let us listen to the calling of the spirit of the living God. May we daily be reminded of the story of Jesus and the hope that it brings. And may we go out prepared to to do the work that God has beforehand. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so amazed and in awe of the work that you can do in our lives. We recognize that on our own we are stone-hearted flesh. But Lord, we are so thankful that you could give us new hearts, that you're working our lives and you're making us into masterpieces. May we go out from this place this week, Lord, as living letters, ready and eager to share the good news of Jesus to all those who may hear it. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.